This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. And always fun to go into Zupan's and make new discoveries. I discovered something really awesome, which is Eli's Salsas. I was standing there at the salsa, looking at the salsas, and they have quite a few to choose from. And uh, the friendly Zupan's employee there asked me if I needed help. And he pointed me in the direction of Eli's sauces. So uh, over two visits, we, I tried the salsa roja and the guaca salsa. And they are insanely wonderful. And on top of that, they now have hot mama salsa tortilla chips. Bags and bags of them that I believe are specially made for Zupans. And those are the absolute best tortilla chips you're ever going to have. So you pair those two together. The hot mama salsa tortilla chips with Eli's sauces. And you will wow yourself and your, your friend. And you will wow yourself. Your friends, family, whoever's had it, absolutely, I mean it, is the best sauce and chips I've ever had. I couldn't stop. And they're both available exclusively at Zupans where you can support and enjoy the fruits of the labors of incredible local producers like Eli's. Not only does Zupans support these local producers, but Zupans is a great source for great food far and wide from, you know, California, Idaho, or maybe over in Europe, Italy, and France. Yeah, this week. Not too far away, but you know, huckleberries are fantastic, but they're generally over closer to found in Idaho and Montana. So mm-hmm. I finally tried, we, we talked about these, um, these marshmallows from Creekside Mallow Company. I tried some huckleberry marshmallows, toasted them over my stove flame, and they're unlike any marshmallow any t- that you've ever had in your entire life. Totally worth the trip to Zupans to grab some of those. Don't forget some of the great floral wine and design events that are taking place. In fact, there's one this Sunday at their West Burnside store. You can join for hands-on floral design classes, uh, make beautiful arrangements, utilizing fresh herbs, fruits and vegetables. And of course, while you're doing that, you're enjoying wine hors d'oeuvres during the class. So three locations to serve you. you got West Burnside, McAdam, Lake Oswego, and of course, all the information about Zupans can be found where, Chris? Zupans.com. Hey, Chris, let's welcome to the Right at the Fork family of fine sponsors, Andina and its new sidekick, Chicha. Yeah, we're very excited about that, as people should be about their Peruvian food. They have new chef Alexander Diestra, who we featured on Right at the Fork recently. Uh, It's now open, Andina, with a brand new menu featuring the exciting flavors of Peru in the Pacific Northwest. So you can experience Alexander, Chef Alexander, oh wait, <clears throat> excuse me. So go experience Chef Alexander's take on modern Peruvian food in the beautiful Andina space in the Pearl. They're taking reservations now with safety requirements in place for stress-free and delicious dining. Or... Check out their new chicha, serving exciting street food served in urban Peru. Chicha is open for takeout or dining outside on one of Andina's patios from 4 to 9. And don't forget, 
They're awesome cocktails. I'm serious. Don't forget them. You can order takeout through DoorDash or Chow Now, or why not simply just make your way on down to Northwest Gleason and 13th for patio dining. And Chris, you can check out the great menus online at andinarestaurant.com or chichapdx.com. That's C-H-I-C-H-A. Visit Andina again for the first time. All right, here it is. Time once again, it's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelis from Portland Food Adventures. I'm Court Johnson, the guy with a cold uh, from Kink Radio. Yeah, but you still sound great. You got a little bit of a cold, but you still, you're still a professional. You know how to handle it. And I think your voice is great. So um, we at least have one good voice on this podcast. Oh, well, anyway, today it's yours, Chris. Today it's yours. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll carry the torch. As best I can. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yesterday in an interview with Jason French, um, I really enjoyed that. And I was, I guess he was carrying the torch then. Uh, and he's carrying the torch right out of the hospitality business. Uh, many people know Jason French um, from Ned Ludd and Elder Hall as one of the Best chefs in Portland, and of course, years ago when I wrote for About Face magazine, I think Jason was my first interview of a series of, I don't know, somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen interviews, um, and I coined him as the perfect ambassador for Portland, who, was, who, who could not only represent the food scene very well, but also just the ethos of Portland, Oregon in the, uh, in the early 2000 teens. Um, uh, with how he put together his restaurant. Many people, if you've been to Ned Ludd, and it's still there, uh, and he's still operating it, if you've been to Ned Ludd, you know that there is only a, uh, a wood-fired uh, oven there to cook in. There's, no ta- there's nothing uh, else, so everything's got to go in that oven. And he did some incredible things um, with that limitation, but he, they didn't look at it as a limitation at Ned Ludd. It was how you cook food and one way to cook it. And they did an incredible job. And of course, then they opened Elder Hall, which was a beautiful event space next door. And, um, and, uh, chef went through a number of iterations, which I talk about early on in the podcast. Um, so this podcast with Jason, is in two parts. The first part is talking about what kind of has transpired over the last year and what he felt like as a, as a guy hitting 50 years old, uh, a chef having been in the business for years, and then the pandemic hit, which seems like it was the straw that broke the camel's back for him. But he said it was before that he'd been thinking about his priorities, not only thinking about him, but he made moves in the restaurant to realign his priorities to help younger people along as well. So that's what he's going to be doing moving forward as he sells Ned Ludd and moves on and becomes a personal coach for men. And when I heard him say that, I thought that was very interesting because as we talk about towards the end of the episode in the second half, 
there are a lot of things in place for women in terms of coaching and uh, and groups and motivation, um, but not so much for men. And as he said it, I realized, boy, men in 2020 can use a little help, especially guys my age. I can't lump you in court with someone my age. We're- but I do need help. <laughs> well, that's true. Any age, yeah. men can use Well, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I think part of the issue is, is men being stupid men. We just we think to ourselves, I don't need help. I, I don't, I, I'm going to figure this thing out on my own, but you know, I, I learned the hard way in my radio career is you need to find that mentor and, uh, let, you know, let them kind of tell you about their path and, and hopefully learn to some degree from them. You, you got to do some things on your own, but, uh, I, I think men probably more than women are just, we're, we're so stupid that we think I don't need help. I don't need to talk to somebody about this. I don't need, you know, whatever it is, whether it's coaching, whether it's therapy, yeah, well, I'm going to just make sure that everybody understands you weren't calling women stupid. No, so you, you, because you did say more than women, so that would imply oh. that some yeah. are. That but is, I'm going to say that that's that not what humans, I meant. Let's just say that humans are generally stupid. Let's not sure. Let's not identify it. And but I but my point from before, and and you're talking about it too, is there are a lot of support groups and a lot of. Uh, you know, you see a lot of um, organizations that support women. Fewer of them can and do support men. And uh, I, I, I think it's pretty cool that Jason has identified this is what he'd like to do where he sees an opportunity to improve himself and others. So, um, so the, as I said, the first half is a little more of uh, what it's like to be a chef and how he re- evaluated that. And then the second half which I really recommend people stick with the whole podcast to get to it because Jason makes some interesting observations about Portland and the food world and um, where he thinks it is now and where it came from. It's not very pretty. And uh, then he talks about, um, you know, what he's doing and moving on. So um, he doesn't have a website yet for us to cite which is interesting, but he knows he needs one. All the things that he's kind of going to promote as healthy, getting away from social media, he knows he needs to do at some point. But at this point, it's um, uh, emails, if anybody wants to get in touch with him, um, it's jason.f.french at gmail, or of course there's his uh, Instagram which is uh, Jason F. French. You can find him there. But also, he, uh, he said most of his life is on his new bride's Instagram, which is Carrie Calshoyer. I don't even know how to pronounce this. Let's, why don't you call Jason and ask him, or, or contact him and ask him how to pronounce it. But it's Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, K-A-L-S-C-H-E-U-E-R. And so she's the director of wine education at Rex Hill Vineyards, interestingly enough. So um, Jason has just got married. As a matter of fact, it took him a while for to get back to me when I asked him if he'd like to come on the podcast. And he used his honeymoon as an excuse. And I told, mm. I told him that's bullshit. Honeymoon yeah, is never the old The old honeymoon excuse. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, it was a, it's a... 
It was it was a pleasure to interview uh, Jason years ago. What number was it, Cork? It was episode forty. So he was in. Uh, I would have to say that second year of Right at the Fork, and was talking about Ned Ludd. He's all, he also came on to talk about the Oregon Truffle Festival. I think that's sp- uh, some of the uh, specific stuff he talked about during that episode. Yeah, well, if I recall, he we came on to talk about the Truffle Festival, and then he said he didn't want to talk about it. So right. uh, I don't remember. I don't know what the politics of all that was, but but these are things he doesn't have to deal with anymore. And, right. and um, not the the truffle festival is something to quote unquote deal with but we do talk about events and all the things pulling at you as a chef owner of a storied restaurant in portland oregon which of course will go on and uh just like lots of other things coming out of the pandemic we'll uh we'll see who takes the reins at ned ludd and uh you know of course He's kind of he backed away from the daily operation of the restaurant um, a while ago, so it's been going on, and whoever buys it will will have some of that in place. But like a lot of the franchises in Portland, like the Tasty franchise, now Ned Ludd will move on without Jason French. But we're fortunate that we weren't without Jason French yesterday, and everybody else is going to be able to access his thoughts. From now forward on the podcast. Enjoy. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. And by... Portland Food Adventures. Ready to break out and travel to some of the world's most delicious destinations? Portland Food Adventures has space available on two trips in 2022 to Basque Country in Spain with Chef Javier Canteras of Urdaneta. Also, if you've never experienced Italy with Austria Enzyme, join Chris for the most delicious nine days in Western Sicily imaginable. Info at portlandfoodadventures.com. It's like it's like old times, Jason. Here we are. <laughs> How many years ago was it? Well, we were in the studio. I th- I don't know. We will look it up before we do the intro to this. But I think it was probably about year three, which would have been. And I think we were, we had you in twice, if I recall. But it would have been about 2015, I think. Okay. Um. But at any rate. Um, I'm really glad to have you in because the world has changed. You've, you know, we've changed the way we're doing this podcast. You've changed the way you're doing your life. Yeah. And uh, all sorts of good things have happened. And I find it, you know, when I, when I saw that you were moving on to some new things, um, it struck me because, you know, we're all looking at Portland, uh, well, the world and Portland and the food scene is changing. And you always, you remember I wrote an article about you back in whenever, 2011. I think it was About Face Magazine. That's how. Of course, About (laughs) Face Magazine. I think you were the, you might have been the first interview I did. I I think you were. Okay. So, um, but I I referred to you as the, something like, 
the perfect ambassador for Portland to the world to represent our food scene. Right. And the reason I thought that is because you were doing some unusual, Ned Ludd was an unusual restaurant and you were doing things in a typically Portland way. And I've always for years, when someone was coming to Portland and looking for places to go, of course we have our lists, but one of the reasons I always mentioned that people would have to go to Ned Ludd was because it embodied everything that was Portland, the, the, the type of uh, sourcing that you were doing, but also especially the fact that you were using a wood stove, uh, uh, wood-fired oven as your exclusive cooking method. And I thought that was cool. And then I'll add on top of this. You'll get to talk at some point. I promise. <laughs> and I had tattoos. So that was... That was, tattoos. Yeah. The other thing is we did one of our, you were very gracious to me when I started Portland Food Adventures and we did one of our first events, I think the second event with you. Yeah. And I still will never forget this in it. And it was one of the things that made me respect what your former profession represented and that you cooked, I think we had probably 36 people mm -hmm. there. You had one, one person assisting you just serving and you cooked everything for 36 <laughs> people in that oven and held conversation the whole time talk to everybody while you were cooking i can't cook for two and talk at the same time so well that was just my phase of being young and dumb and not knowing any better no i uh it's funny yeah that that um those were some times and i think you know i did a i did I think in so many cases, chefs end up relying so much on the team, right? And the chef always gets the accolades. And I remember I did an event for um, IPNC. This was a pre-IPNC dinner going back, like, this is even before Ned Ludd. I was working at Clark Lewis at the time, and I had commandeered two people to help me do a seven-course dinner for 40 that I was doing um, with my late friend Jimmy Brooks. Um, and Francis Tannehill and Hatcher Wines and um, last minute both of my cooks bailed out and this is again and speaking to that young and dumb I actually cooked I did I made fresh made pasta I made a squab sugo and I braised lamb shanks for 40 um, up at up at Durant olive oil company in their original little house not the new beautiful big kitchen they have um, and I, and I ended up doing it all by myself. And that was sort of, that was a lesson in, um, uh, you know, it was a lesson on many levels, but it was one of those ones where I realized that if you just organize a little bit more, you require fewer people. And then once I opened the restaurant, I realized from a financial standpoint, as much weight as I could carry would be of nothing but pure financial benefit to me. So it hurt a lot more, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, I've had many, many nights of that, uh, just, you know, doing dinners for 30 or 40 people by myself. I would, again, I think it's incredible. I think we must've done eight courses, but the thing, the thing that struck me is that you could converse throughout the entire thing. Well, so, you know, I, and, and people, a lot of people in Portland don't even know this. I had a, I had a life before I even hit Portland in 2000. Um, it was late 2000, early 2001. And my life before that was teaching culinary school and selling wine for four years in Boulder, Colorado. And, um, so I was, I was, I had, 
even done a gig for Blue Cross Blue Shield where I was doing demonstration cooking in front of, you know, 300, 400 people um, prior to that and teaching classes super regularly. So the the cooking while talking format was pretty familiar with me or, or to me. And so I, I um, yeah, I kind of just took that ball and ran with it. Well, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, you learned when you bought the restaurant what the finances were all about, but it was a constant learning process because you opened Ned Ludd and you started with a partner, then you didn't have a partner, and then you, uh, you know, you opened, um, oh my God, I just had it in my mind. Uh, Elder Hall. Next door. Yeah, yeah, Elder yeah, Hall. Elder Hall, I'm sorry. Elder Hall, and so you had to learn about that event space, and yeah. then more learning on the way, and then boom, Pandemic. There's some, there's some shit for you to deal with. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of like, um, it, you know, it made all the hardship of the recession seem like, um, child's play, honestly, just because it was every, it was, it was collective and it was unknown, you know, recessions are kind of, I always refer to recessions as economic equalizers. Like they happen at the right time for the right reason, because they kind of equalized, obviously, in 2008, which, which what was an insane global real estate market. Um, and so it helped level the playing field on that. Unfortunately, not enough people went to jail. So we're somewhat in a similar economic financial reality now, only it's supported and propped up by a lot more, um, you know, other. It's just it's we're in the same situation, only a little bit further down the road. Financially. And the, yeah, so the pandemic was sort of collective and it was, um, yeah, it was just a brutal way to a brutal way to uh, try to exist. And, you know, we, we, I mean, we could talk, go deep on the pandemic and what it took to survive or not survive um, in our case, but it's um, something that, you know, for us was just a real difficult, um, yeah, it was a difficult, difficult realization, especially given we had had a really hard 2000 and 19 and we were on track to have our best first quarter since 2015 so um when it hit it hit at the exact wrong time in all the worst ways and yeah it it made it an incredibly challenging year and a half yeah we've spent a lot of time talking about it on the podcast for the last year and a half so let's talk about better stuff Yeah, no, no, no. And, and, you know, it became a challenge to find good stories, which is why I wanted to talk to you. But in a broader sense regarding the pandemic, I don't want to talk about what it was like daily to get through at Ned Lutt. But what I'm curious about is, did you have plans to leave to stop being a chef before the pandemic? Or is that was that the straw that broke the camel's back for you? And, uh you know, explain a little bit about how the process or the the genesis of your wanting to do something different. Right. Well, um, you know, I it's my my chef tale is really curious. And I have some friends who have some, you know, some well, very well known chefs globally right now and nationally who have become really good friends of mine and colleagues over the years. And um we always exchange our sort of CV, right? So we, we sort of tell each other's story to each other. And I, I had imagined after culinary school in nine, I got out of culinary school in 96 that I would go to Europe and then cook in Europe and then go to Asia and cook there and then come back to the U S when I felt like I was ready to open a restaurant. 
Um, and that just never happened. It never materialized whatsoever. And so I had a weird circuitous route where I had a catering company and I taught culinary school and I sold wine. And then when I got to Portland, I worked in restaurants here because I wanted to get back in the kitchen and off the culinary school kind of circuit. And, and also I had had a book deal go south um, kind of at the end of 99 and so I just, I was tired of that. And I just wanted to get back to my, my roots of cooking in a kitchen. And so that's, that coincided with moving to Portland. And so I had always imagined, you know, not necessarily just being at the stove because I hadn't always just been at the stove. You know, my resume is not just littered with a bunch of great restaurants that I cooked at. There are some great restaurants that I cooked at, but I just did a lot more, you know, varied things in between all of that. I made wine in 2003 with Jimmy Brooks. I, um, you know, worked as a butcher at new seasons for three and a half years. And, um, and so, you know, I had a, I had a real different, I had a broader skill set. And so when Ned Ludd opened, it was, it opened because I had always wanted a restaurant, but I wasn't, and I opened it and kind of survived by being the chef, you know, and the voice and the face and all that kind of stuff. I understood the branding of restaurants at the time, especially if you were a chef owned restaurant. And so, in that trajectory, um, you know, I didn't imagine dying at the stove or retiring from the stove. So I had honestly, and if you talk to any of my staff over the years, um, they can tell you starting about probably five years ago, I started, you know, essentially it's a, it's a, it's a math equation, right? I paid people more. I took home less to allow people to do the work for me that I didn't want to do. So whether that was, you know, at, at one point at Ned Ludd, I was the wine buyer, the payroll specialist, the HR person, the hiring and firing manager, the general manager, and the chef all at once. And this is kind of that 2008 through 2000 and, you know, 12, 13. Um, and so starting after that, I was, I was really fried and, I had some really amazing talent around me and these, you know, again, the younger kids just had a totally different skill set that I had not um, had to engage as a chef. And so I let them, I let them take the reins and I paid, you know, I paid out more in, in payroll, but it, it kind of, it allowed the restaurant to almost be m less about me and my thing and more about the collective experience of who we had gathered between front of house and back of the house and the hard lesson think, say, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think that you, but you needed to present yourself as the face of the restaurant for a few years to get the footing so that you could then transition to letting other people do their thing? Yeah, for sure. And, and so a couple of things, I mean, number one, you need to have people, you know, everyone gets a, you know, it's like when you give young cooks this opportunity, they, um, typically try to take it and run with it in their direction. And the point was to kind of get people to understand that Ned Ludd is Ned Ludd. It's not Jason French at that point. It's Ned Ludd. It's got a life of its own. And so you're not working for yourself. You're working and you're not working. You're not doing your thing for, for you. You're doing it for Ned Ludd. And so, so there was a couple hiccups of people coming and going over the years just trying to find the right mix. And, and we had a real dramatic shift in the way that I approached hiring, which was really much more about culture and less about, you know, your resume. So we started hiring people who we felt would be a good presence and, and be able to be identify with the brand of Ned Ludd and carry it forward and kind of check their ego at the door. 
And so, you know, this took, again, in a two or three year process of people coming and going, whether it was a GM or a bar, den- bar manager or a sous chef or, you know, who would be the chef de cuisine. Um, that mix is always a real curious one to kind of find what was the right balance and how did, how were we going to find that right balance? And I had, I had, you know, I felt like I had just gotten it right when the pandemic hit, like we were kind we'd kind of hit a pretty decent stride, um, when things went sideways. And so, so the life, so I became less of the chef and more of the restaurateur. And to that point, I just was so tired of the dog and pony show of, like an event chef or doing, you know, cooking demos or going to do these, you know, festivals. I mean, that gets real old real quick. Um, and, and I'd done it for eight or nine years. And so I was, I was well, um, aware of what it was and what the cost of it was. And, and honestly, I wanted to afford those opportunities for younger people coming up who, you know, that was really rich experience if you wanted to eventually go up in your own place one day. So hopefully, um, you know, and, and again, I think it was just sort of about perfecting that equation that became really difficult and um, perfecting it was is not really what you're striving for. You're just striving for people who can manage on a day to day level and not let their egos get in the way. And, and I had a great team in place, um, I felt like, who were able to execute that. So. You know, what would it look like now if the pandemic hadn't happened? Honestly, Ned Blood, um, I, I had considered selling it already just because even though I had taken a back seat and had this amazing lifestyle that I had created for myself with as a restaurant, less more of a restaurateur and less of a chef, um, you know, the, the weight of <laughs> the, the, to bear the burden of just a restaurant day to day financially um, is just brutal. And, and someone has to be, you know, constantly have their hands on the reins. And I, over again, like a five year period, I had discovered how difficult that was. And, and, and honestly was looking for some new chapters in my life. So all of this coincides with the fact that I had had some personal coaching. Um, I was involved in, um, a a relationship that was not great and, um, and I was not doing great. And I was really having a hard time finding my way because, you know, I had, I had, if you think about my trajectory, I had, I, I was not necessarily a hundred percent identified with myself as a chef, like working the line every day, but I also didn't know what the next steps would look like. And I had dabbled in and gotten enough acumen and, you know, enough attention from, you know, we did, I had a great run with William Sonoma there for a while. Um, you know, I'd, I'd had some opportunities come down the pike. I did a bunch of stuff with TV food network um, and a lot of that stuff, you know, ultimately it just didn't really pan out into anything where I could shift gears and make it a life, you know, and, and again, you're essentially then just a chef for hire going and putting your face out there and, you know, whatever you're selling Heston cookware or, you know, Sabatier knives or whatever everybody does to, you know, keep the dream alive. Um, that's just a hustle that I didn't really want to do. And so I was, I was, I spent a couple dark years there in not in a great relationship, not in a great place and trying to figure out all the next steps. So I had had some coaching, um, that I started, you know, I don't even know, like now it's probably six years ago and had an amazing guy who did a lot of, I did a lot of great work with him and got, it got me really clear. And as a result, I started a coaching business, three years ago, um, picked up a handful of clients. And and so that sort of, that began a whole other trajectory. And that whole other trajectory is 
one in because the great part about that was I became much more of a mentor and a guide for my staff. And I shifted a lot of the way that I operated within the organization. So for instance, there's a story where a bunch of old cooks that worked for me and a bunch of my new cooks all met out one night. And I don't know the restaurant or the bar, but they were all out in the same space and everybody starts talking about Ned Ludd. And then um, someone's like, you know, one of the old cooks is like, oh, how's, how's French doing? And she's like, oh, man, that guy, you know, again, like, I love me or hate me. I think I still warranted mostly respect from most people. Um, they, they said, you know, he was really intense to work for. He was really hard or he was really mean or he was really whatever. But they're all telling their, their war stories. And everybody, all the new cooks are like, what are you talking about? No, I've actually never heard him yell. And they're like, what? That's interesting. Yeah, so I had just kind of, I kind of shifted my, you know, a lot of my mentality just shifted, you know, because a lot of times when I was yelling at people, I was yelling at myself. A lot of times, you know, you're trying to be a control freak and you can't control everything. And and so I really just changed my tune on the way that I approach people. And, and one of my, the greatest gifts I kind of gave myself was that, um, you know, I was never going to be happy at work if I was not just happy within myself. And I also wasn't going to be happy at home. And so I really pushed a lot of my cooks to engage, not, you know, and again, it wasn't like mental health, like the, I didn't use the terms mental health at the time, but I realized, you know, if you have this separation between your work self and your life self, and you check your life stuff at the door, it's only going to be there when you clock out at 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, whatever. And so it was more, so I used to tell my, my new staff that I'm way more vested in their personal well-being as a whole outside of work because I can't expect anything of them at work if their life is a shit show outside of work. And, and you see this all over the place. I mean, you know, someone, and we saw it manifesting itself in different ways over the pandemic in terms of happiness with wages and, and the 86 list. And, you know, thankfully when you were with your old staff that was complaining that you were, you you could have been tough to work for. Thankfully they didn't have that list then because uh, you would have been out there with that possibly. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean that, well, that's, that's a much bigger story that has less, it doesn't have always to do with it's yeah i mean it's it's again there's perception and there's reality right and, well it has to do with how happy people are yeah and they're their own shit out there well, yeah, for I the mean, most part yeah. i'm not saying across the board yeah but you know if uh, although there were some external factors to cause that too always what i'm curious about is you kind of touched on this uh at least indirectly a yeah. minute ago yeah. is when when you went into that mode and you mentioned psychology. What is the real difference between a personal coach and a, and a therapist? Um, because I've gone to therapy before, and I can tell you that I've been coached yeah. in terms of how best to handle my life. So where, where's the gray area there, and how do you really uh, delineate yourself? You know, it's funny. I've, I've, I've been in and out of therapy probably since I was like tw- 19 or 20. And I say in and out. I mean, sometimes it was relationship therapy. Sometimes it was personal therapy. Um, I've had, I run the gamut. And when I went looking for, and I'll tell you this experience. So I went looking for a therapist because I just was not happy. And I had, I couldn't figure out like the next step to take. And it's hard when, I mean, you know, when you own a restaurant and you have two kids and you're in a relationship, it's really hard to like 
when you don't know which next step to take, it's terrifying, right? You're just, I, I literally. You don't have a lot of time to figure that out no, either to go to a therapist. Yeah. And so it's basically like, oh, I'm going to blow this up and then try and clean it up. And next I'm going to blow this up and then try to clean this up. And so I just, you know, I, I was not in a, I was, I was, I was suffering greatly, uh, at, at a, in a world of my own making. Um, because I just wasn't clear on anything and I was not communicating well and I was not acting well. And, you know, I, I'd gone through a divorce and I mean, I, you know, again, like I, it's a, it is a quintessential and well-worn uh, fable at this point, but I had two friends in particular who both had coaching experiences while I was looking for a therapist. And I interviewed three or four therapists who all kind of I mean, therapists always kind of fall short of the mark because, and I, and the joke now is um, a coach gets you on on the path and is there then only to keep you on the path, whereas a therapist wants to keep getting paid to keep revisiting the path. And so, so I kind of joke for people who've like had the same therapist for 10 years, it's like, yeah, that's, you're so, you're such a gracious, um, you know, benefactor at that point. Like if you're still in therapy after 10 years, I just, I, I don't get it. Like, I don't get how that's effective. And, and again, thanks for paying for their kids' college tuition. Um, but I think the therapy is wrapped up in a model that is, you know, it's, it sort of has all the answers of the, of human nature, even though the practice of it has been around for like just around a hundred years. So that's something, you know, if we, if we look at, if we look at the history of humanity and we look about around along like, Freudian and Jungian, uh, kind of like the birthplace of psychology started, we're a hundred years in, but apparently therapists have all the answers. So, um, that's something too, where I think coaching allows for a much broader range of experience where it's not about judgment and it's, or not that therapists are judging, but I think that there's, there's kind of like this, um, mode that you get into like yeah you can you can totally go mine your childhood and your adolescence and all this stuff but at the end of the day it's what are you doing today and what are you doing tomorrow and what are you doing next week because you can't change the past um and you can't predict the future so all you really have to do is focus on what are you doing today and if your behavior needs to change today is the day to change that behavior and then tomorrow is the day to you know change your, continue to change your behavior and then in 6 to 9 months or six to nine weeks, depending on how committed you are, then you form new habits and new habits create new opportunities. Um, but if you see yourself as always a victim or battling things that your dad did to you, or, you know, my parents were mean to me or my dad was absent. I mean, you can hash that. You can rewrite the chapter of that book a hundred ways from Sunday. And all that matters are your actions today, tomorrow and next week. And so it was really about for me, I just needed to create a framework for myself where I understood myself with a lot of clarity um, I forgave myself and and my 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 parents and my family for the the perceived or real injustices of my youth, um, and and honestly, just got super clear on who I am and and how I want to be and how I want to show up in the world, and and where I want to be in you know five, ten, fifteen, twenty years. I'm not you know I'm fifty. I'm fifty one now. So it's like it's not like. You know, and again, I could have gone to a therapist and they would have, you know, they always have to give the, the sort of diagnosis like, oh, he seems to be mildly depressed. Da, da, da. Well, no shit. Like, 
you own a business and you have kids and you have financial responsibilities and people aren't showing up at your restaurant, like that's going to have an, a, an impact. But what you choose to do with that is, is a hundred percent of the, um, the, the, fu- the future that you're going to create. And so for me, coaching is, is very present oriented. Uh, therapy tends to delve a little bit more into the past and, and in coaching, a lot of your past will come up because you start, you start as you start to gauge where you are today and how you are today uh-huh. and how you want to change and how you want to be better and show up for you and others. Um, it begins this little process. So for me, what I realized was I'm a, I'm a huge giver, right? I'm, I'm the reason I own a restaurant is because I love to feed people and I love to provide for people. The reason I, I mean, I paid my staff really well. We did healthcare. We got rid of tipping. We did all these things because I genuinely believed that the restaurant then could just be a vehicle, not only a vehicle for our patrons because they got to come have this magical experience, but it was a vehicle for, um, you know, our staff to, to have a, and again, I was really clear, especially the last couple of years of, of, you know, pre pandemic, I was really clear about the fact that like, I provide a lot of, foundation here. I provided free coaching. I provided free counseling. I provided access. Like, like, what do you want to do with your life? Who do you really want to be? If you want to be a line cook your whole life, awesome. But nobody really just wants to be a line cook their whole life. Or if you just want to be stuck behind a bar. So, so take your, take your imagination and imagine your world and just use this as a stepping stone into that world. Because I provide healthcare. I provide a really solid wage. Um, I don't, it's not a super taxing schedule. You know, we were very flexible with people. Um, and I always start, you know, once we got rid of the tipping, it was really easy to, to create for people this reality where it was, a it was way more equity oriented, um, as a team and less about front of house, back of the house. And so I wanted people to be focused on their future and the things that they could do today. Um, and, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of where I gauge it. So the coaching practice, um, it was very positive for me overall. Um, I'm not a great self marketeer, which I know sounds weird having a restaurant, but you know, um, I thought you were, I thought you were fantastic. I would, well, different with you on that. Well, I thought you were really good. If you put me in front of people, I'll get clients. But if, if I'm cold calling with, you know, it's like, it's also that thing of like, you know, a hundred percent of people would be like, Oh, but you're a chef. And it's like, mm, yeah, there's a certain yeah. motivation that it's the same. I've always been the same way. If you get me in front of people, get me the meeting. I'm perfectly comfortable. Totally. Cold calling and all that stuff is a whole different thing. And you need someone else yep. to be able to say, Hey, there's this guy, Jason, there's this chef. You got to meet him. Yeah. It's harder to do that for yourself. Listen, I'd like to take, uh, a little bit of a break, but I want to get back to a little bit the business of restaurants sure. because this is a little bit of a debriefing from Jason French. But let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about that. Sounds good. Hey, Chris, let's pause just a moment and talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Yeah, where they've always had your safety in mind. Uh, of course, they have those beautiful updated booths and spent a lot of money on their ventilation system to update it to current standards and beyond. Um, So whether it's their delightful outdoor dining or inside, you can always enjoy ringside hospitality knowing they're steps ahead 
when it comes to safely serving you a fantastic experience. And of course, ringside always satisfies Chris. So if you've got something like, I don't know, A5 Wagyu, maybe that's your thing. You can come and enjoy it at Ringside Steakhouse. Yeah, so no matter what the size group, whether you're just going to go dine as a romantic evening with two, some friends and family with four, or if you'd like a setting for a small group gathering, Ringside, of course, can put that together for you too safely. Reservations are super easy to do. You just go to the Open Table app or ringsidesteakhouse.com, make that reservation, or you can actually walk in without a reservation for bar top seating. Yeah, Ringside for over 75 years. 75! And mm-hmm. it's all as the hallmark of great service and steaks in Portland. All right. Well, we're here with Jason French. Are you former chef, owner of Ned Lod? Are you there yet? Or are you about to be? We're about to former? be there. We have, we have, um, it'll all be announced soon. But um, yeah, there's some, there's a great group um, that I was put in contact with last spring and the paperwork is all there and we're just kind of waiting for final steps. So you've been, you were just going through all the lovely things that you wanted to accomplish as uh, owning the restaurant in terms of growth for those people who are younger than you and, and um, what you could accomplish both for, for them and for customers. How are you going to, that was a big part of your life for a long time. And I know the last year has completely sucked. So you'll be glad not to have that. True. But do you think you're going to miss some of the, uh, a lot of the, the locker room stuff, you know, the, the stuff behind the, behind the scenes. And it, it's no secret that Portland had a real, uh, and I'm sure you're going to maintain your friendships but that had a lot of camaraderie with a lot of folks in Portland that you're just not going to see on a daily basis that you saw before. How's that going to change for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have, um, I mean, it's, I'll put it this way. I had taken myself out of the kitchen long enough to realize that, um, that I'm okay not being in the kitchen and I'm okay not being in the past and seeing, having people see me and be like, Oh, that's Jason French. Uh, that stuff's all great. I, I had a really great run as that. It was, um, it was great for my ego. It's that funny thing where, you know, uh, your ego might be great, but you're not, you know, no customer and not enough customers are showing up. So how, you know, what, what is, what is your sense of success really tied to? Um, so once I, once I transitioned out of the kitchen and once I got kind of clear with myself, you know, four years ago, five years ago, um, and took some pretty drastic steps to, um, make my life what I wanted it to be, the lure of the kitchen and like, kind of like the, the locker room and the banter and all that kind of stuff. I, I just, I, you know, I don't know if like, um, it's not like I grew up or something. It's, It's like, I just wasn't attracted to the grind of it. And to that point, you know, the end of the pandemic for, uh, you know, the end of 2020 for us was they shut everybody down again. Um, and I basically worked with one other guy and did all the cooking, all the cleaning, all the events, all the packaging, all the, you know, and be doing it 50 years old. And I was like, and I honestly, yeah, I mean, I literally like on December 31st, 
packed up the last of the New Year's Day packages that we were doing. And I was like, I am too fucking old for this. I mean, I we laughed, you know, I've laughed about that with chefs and chef buddies forever. Just like, no, man, I'm not on the line anymore. Are you kidding me? I can't keep up with these kids, the aches and the joints and the wrists and the arthritis and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I, yeah, I really, I don't miss the kitchen of it. Um, you know, and I miss, I, I, I don't know what I'll miss. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, I, we were so, well, we, we were very, we were very blessed to have the people. I was very blessed to have the patrons that we had show up. I was very blessed to get some great press and have some really great support from, you know, corporate entities outside of Ned Ludd. Um, and I was really blessed to have amazing people come work with me. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think I just, it's that, that restaurant is a psychic grind that when you're the chef and the owner, it's just, um, it's a lot, it's a lot. So as I doled more of the business out to employees to run, it became harder for me to, um, yeah, want to be a huge part of it. Yeah. But let me also throw this hypothesis out there as someone who someone who was your age you know a little over 10 years ago and by the way that was like the worst time of my life (laughs) I was 50 but that also coincided with what you were talking about before was 08 and 09 things things weren't good so and you know I had teenagers that's me but let me ask you this because now you've fallen in love right yeah and so the contrast between your home life your out-of-work life and work life, which became a little bit of a drudge, was so drastic that it made your work life just like not look as appealing as it used to be. It was like almost the nail in the coffin when you're having this, you know, dreamy yeah. new romance outside of work. Well, and I, I kind of, yeah, possible? for sure. And I, you know, I'm one of those, I, I definitely, yes, all of that, because, you know, even, um, you know, when I had my, you know, I had a great marriage, you know, um, and like all great marriages, it's great kind of until it's not. And then it's that slow slip into alienation with your partner and there's kids involved and it's, it's, it's a painful struggle, but I, I could throw myself wholeheartedly into Ned Ludd. And when I got out of my last relationship, um, I, I wasn't wholeheartedly into Ned Ludd, right? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't working. I wasn't responsible for, being there every night. Um, and I was, you know, I was responsible for doing a handful of events and making sure everything was running and that people were showing up and doing their jobs, but I didn't have to be there in that same way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, um, the quality of my life now, I kind of say that I got my kids back, you know, after getting out of my last relationship, which was really powerful for me. Cause I, I definitely miss those years. I'm not a great kid dad, you know, I'm, I'm terrible with like, if I can't have a full conversation with people, it's like, it's hard sometimes. And so as my kids have gotten older and, you know, I've gotten better at communicating and, um, increase my empathy skills. Um, you know, my relationships with them have just flourished. And, um, and so, and then also just having a partner for the first time who, I, you know, it's like to, to be on equal terms with a partner is also, um, pretty powerful as well. And so, yeah, I mean, my home life now, I, that it's the funny thing of like, don't you miss cooking? I was like, I cook every day. Like I cook, I cook, mm-hmm. I oftentimes cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. Um, so I, it's not about like missing, I don't really miss anything. Right. I feel like I've 
I mean, shit, I was, I've been in the restaurant industry in some way, shape or form for over 30 years. So that feels pretty solid, right? I don't need, I got nothing left to prove. This is a, it's been a great chapter. Ned Ludd had an amazing run. I'm so thankful to, you know, what Portland provided and what the press provided and what my people provided um, and what the patrons provided me over all this time. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, it's like dying at the stake, right? Are you really going to just hammer? Are you just like, for me, am I just a chef? Is that all I've got? Am I the one trick pony? Like I've never been a one trick pony. I've never, you know, I, I was the kid that was an all state, you know, headed to division three co- uh, college football player in high school um, who busted his shoulder. And when I'm told that I, basically could keep playing and potentially paralyze my left arm. I was like, okay, I'm done. And my mom starts crying and she's like, aren't you upset? And I'm like, well, no, I mean, football is a thing I'm good at and I like it, but it's not, I don't think about it in the off season. I don't really watch it on TV. You know, I'm not like, it's not my be all and end all. And when you look at life, I mean, you have to play to your strengths, right? And my strength as I've you know come to realize is, is, you know, my ability to translate, uh, information and, uh, to people and work with people and work for people. Um, and again, it's not to make people happy, but it's at least to, to offer, a, a if not a unique perspective, a perspective that, um, hopefully helps them, you know, manage life's, uh, mysteries and life's sort of, um, inconsistencies. Interesting take as you get older that you're seeing you have different priorities and, uh, you know, more interested in people uh, enriching their lives and lives of others. I am curious as uh, someone who had been right in the center of the Portland food world uh, and have witnessed, I think, I don't know, do you think that we are, Portland had its glory days of... You know, when you started Ned Ludd, I, I, I kind of point back to 07, 08, 09, right through to before the pandemic is this uh, really cool period for Portland. For sure. And I don't know where it's going to be now. I really, I'm not sure. I think that we'll, we'll see some new folks coming up um, who are part of the scene, but things have changed. I mean, let's face it, I'm, I'm going to say personally without you, and and John and Renee Gorham in town, and Jose Chesa is gone. Yeah, uh, it doesn't feel the same to me. And, and Scott Dolich, yeah, um, yep. you know he's around in some form, but I'm sure we'll see some others that uh, will not be around. What, what do you what do you foresee for Portland in terms of the food world? Is it going to maintain its status? Um, nationally or globally? What do you see? No, I mean, it's, you know, it's like Portland dug its own grave, right? Uh, no, there, there's, this is, this is, you know, I used to say when we open, there's, there's four reasons why Portland is Portland. Um, as far as like my restaurant was concerned and it was Nike, Adidas, Wyden and Kennedy and Intel. These are four iconic brands, each in their own field, who chose Portland and the greater Portland metro area as their home. They have international connections and international brands that they would bring to Portland to showcase what Portland was. 
And now, you know, as time goes on, Portland's just another city in America. You know, it looks, it doesn't look any different than Nashville or Austin or Madison or Memphis or Charleston. I mean, we're just, we're just another, we're just another place. And, you know, my, my line that I started using kind of midway through Ned Ludd's career when everybody was yay Portland and patting themselves on the back about how cool Portland was you know, I shifted out of the Wyden and Kennedy Nike Adidas line and was more like, yeah, what actually makes Portland amazing is Oregon. Um, <laughs> because at the end of the day, it's our location and our proximity to this amazing state and this amazing Pacific Northwest region that makes Portland really Portland. Um, because what Portland had already started to look like midway through Ned Ludd's lifespan was, um, you know, Every other city, you know, oh, it's well, got the, it's got the ramen. It's, it's, well, I mean, again, it's like it, from a food. A little credit there. Portland set the tone that other cities followed and then they started doing it as well as Portland. A hundred percent. And, and one of my, my, I guess my point is what, what Portland was able to export exported really well and really readily to, I mean, I had friends and with design firms you know, and, and it was kind of like an eye roll joke. If I get one more call from Chicago or New York or LA with someone saying, Hey, we want to do an iconic Portland style restaurant here, you know, I'm going to throw up because everybody wanted what Portland had. And this is the funny, this is, it's so hilarious because it's like, it's like as soon as developers get wind of the next trend, pretty much stop doing it or stop or go the other way. Right. So it's like, that's why I say like every city looks and feels like every other city. It's like, you can drive. I just drove, I did a two week road trip for my honeymoon around this beautiful United States of ours, hitting all these national parks, going through rural areas. And, you know, every town looks like, I mean, every town of a certain size looks and feels exactly the same. And and again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's, um, not, not that there's not some character there, but it is this sort of, you know, at the end of the day, the, what we have to export in Portland right now is just it's it, from a restaurant standpoint, you can find it in spades and any other, me, you know, medium to large size city in America. It's already been exported. Totally been. Totally been exported. The good news is you can go to any city and get great, great coffee now, too. Totally. Because, yeah. Well, and this uh, is that point, right? I mean, like, when you look back, it's like, it's like a, you know, the village in New York. I grew up in New York in the 80s. Like, talk about an iconic time, what New York exported at that point with Greenwich Village and, like, the music scene. And the, it's, it's the whole thing is, like, what happens with culture in a city is what you know, everybody believes if I package it and put it somewhere else, it'll be awesome. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people have moved to Portland who said, you know, you know, it's like, I always love this. They come from other cities and be like, you know what Portland really needs. And I'd be like, Ooh, I can't wait for you to tell me your New York, <laughs> your New York version of Portland or your LA version of Portland or your San Francisco version of Portland. Like, thank you for telling us what we need because you know, what we needed to, was not to become a cookie cutter, you know, event town. Like that's, I mean, when you look at the infrastructure of the city, we just, we turned ourselves from this kind of, you know, that, that 2007, like you said, that heyday of DIY and tons of like local support and enthusiasm for the community and the city and what it was doing. I mean, it's vibrancy. It had a real palpable energy from when I moved here. And, you know, when we opened Clark Lewis, I mean, Clark Lewis, put a lot of the international eyes on us 
in ways where suddenly the music and the art scene and, you know, uh, was was something people wanted to check out. And you could come here and open a small wood-fired oven restaurant for literally, I mean, we opened for $30,000. That kind of shit's just unheard of. And the state... Can't even open a food truck for that no. now. And I mean, so, so, and again, I know that this is just, you know, maybe it's like the old guys talking about the good old days. Um, you know, thank, thank you so much, Vitaly Paley, Kathy Wims, and Kevin Gibson for continuing to wave your flag. Um, but honestly, outside of that, I don't know any, I haven't been to any of these. You know, I was funny because you, we kind of had our chats prior to doing this. And I looked at the Eater 38, like, I don't think I've been to any of those except for maybe Gato Gato, which was weirdly far down the list. And they're all just kind of like Asian-y, fusion-y, you know, there's a couple. I was just having that. Quit the conversation the other day is if you want to get on the Eater 38 now, you just have to offer some more Asian uh, items on the menu and maybe that will help. Well, I just, yeah. And it can, for me, like that goes contrary to what I think about when I think about going out to eat, right? I mean, I don't, and it's not, it has nothing to do with Asian food per se, but it has to do with like, um, you know, again, I, if you can't talk about sourcing and farms and, techniques and you know if it's just a version of a dish that i had in singapore like cool um that's not you know again like i don't i don't i guess for me i just don't seek out like this is and again it's it's that is uh you know chris that's more endemic of american food culture everybody loves the next thing everybody loves the new the this the that i mean i also think it's, it has something to do with it's generational mm-hmm. too. Totally. I mean, I, I find when I talk to younger people, they seem to be more Asian oriented. Yeah. And I also, I want to throw this out there because it's important to me. Yeah. It's the old guy now complaining all the time. Right. But after the pandemic, when we're now doing takeout food in boxes and, and dining becomes food and not hospitality. Right. Uh, the almost the opposite of hospitality to pick up a, a box of food and then be asked to leave a tip for the box as opposed to the actual service that you're getting. Sure. Do you think that's going to change that, that that this last year and a half and who knows how long this is going to go on? But, you know, my feeling is and I know you offered it at Ned Ludd. There was a real feeling of hospitality when you went into that restaurant. You felt loved. If I you felt like yeah. you were you wanted to be there. Yeah. And it's not all about the food. You know, I, I've always felt that the food the food has to be good, yes. Yeah. But I crave good service and that experience of the the give and take between the staff. Yeah. You know, in Portland, what we had, which I think made it special, was the fact that you could talk to the chef. Yeah. There were chef's ta- there were chef's counters. Uh and that made it really different. And so I wonder going forward if that's still going to be a thing or now that we have the Ritz-Carlton going in and we're going to have <laughs> I always, like I love the Ritz-Carlton going in. I'm just like, who did the demographic research on that one? That oh, my God. I knocked out all the food carts that, that made Portland what it was. It's all amazing. those food carts down there. It's amazing. So that to me was uh, – was a watershed moment yep. when you're bringing in a Ritz Carlton and you're sending out all the food carts. But I just wonder, I guess there's a lot of parts to this question, but we were talking about it. I just wonder how important this, these days, as you and I get older and there's younger people who are used to ordering things on their phone now. Yeah. 
Uh, how important is actual hospitality and, and that experience? Uh, the bartender knowing what you ordered and having a conversation with you. How important is that? Um, and do you think that'll matter going I, forward? You know, I'm not a, I think so only because people have become so, um, polarized and uncivilized that when you actually get hospitality, it's going to be like a big warm embrace. I, and that's my, that's my feeling on like almost a psycho, uh, psychological level. Um, like people, like for instance, we failed a hundred percent of all to go items that we did. Like no one wanted any fucking to go from us, and it didn't matter if I. It wasn't Ned, Well, no, Ned, no, no. Well, exactly. No, and when, when what do people think about when they think about Ned Lud? The space, the bartender, the servers, the food. Like it's the it, so this is you know we always used to joke Ned Lud's success is a three legged pony called food service and ambiance, and when those three work. And those three, if those three work at a good level, you have an amazing experience when they work at an exceptional level, it's, it's lights out, right? Because, because that's so uncommon. And so, you know, there are restaurants in town who focused on the menu and they focus on the ambiance and they totally forgot how to train hospitality or they focused on, you know, they focus on a hundred percent of things, but not the big picture. And so yeah, hospitality even is not a given just because you open a restaurant. A lot of people, it's called the service industry where it should be the hospitality industry. Um, and and that that point of it where this kind of like model of everything is takeout to go order on your phone, it's impersonal. It's, you know, it's not cold, but it's, yeah, it's just impersonal. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think people people were genuinely starving to get back out at restaurants. And, and, you know, if I have anything moving forward, it's like maybe I teach more people how to just cook better, healthier, easier food at home. Because, you know, I always used to look, laugh at, um, you know, people who have these like multi-gajillion dollar kitchens, but dine out, you know, five nights a week. Because they just, oh, cooking such a hassle or it's, oh, it takes so much time or, oh, the farmer's market is so expensive. Like everybody's got all these excuses for why you know they... Don't for me? Don't it, do it. It's very simple for me, the equation. I have a really nice kitchen now. It's the cleaning. Hmm. So if someone were to come and provide me, I could call them at 7.30 and say, hey, I'll set, come on over and I could sit there and do my thing. That's what I'd love. But I went through different phases through the pandemic, which were oh, I get to support this restaurant that I love, so maybe they can stay open. That would be great. I'll take anything I can. And it's nice to get a taste of their food to the point where after a year of that, I was like, I can't stand eating out of a box anymore. I don't even care. Yeah. I'd rather I'd rather eat my own because my cooking then became on par with yours. Yeah. I'm not, I don't really mean that. No, totally. But I mean, the I, meal I, I made myself was more pleasurable than what I could pick up at any great restaurant in Portland. Yep. So, yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's where I am. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I don't know. I always just, you know, everyone's like, oh, how do you feel about the pandemic and its effect on the restaurants? And I'm like, look, I was, if you guys weren't listening, for years, I was like, what the world does not need is another restaurant. Like, we just don't, we're fucking, we're good. We're good. We said that, so, so, I said that in Portland back in 2010. Yeah, so, ev so every new building that's built has this mentality of being like, I mean, you just drive up Williams or Division. I mean, you drive any of these, you know, new cities within our city that used to just be little cool neighborhoods. Um, it's like, it's, you know, once you walk to get past the homeless 
stuff. It's like, oh, there's um, every every building is a community, right? So every building has a restaurant, every building has a library sh- or a little card shop, or every building has a dress shop and a coffee shop. Well, if you walk all the way up and down Division and look at how many restaurants that means, yes, yes, those places can be popular and and maintain kind of like from a business acumen, they can maintain profitability, but again, it just doesn't, nothing feels unique and nothing feels special because you're just one of another new building restaurant with the exposed plumbing above your head that, you know, it's like, I love, you know, it's like, I love going into these restaurants where, you know, it's like, it's just, it's that concrete, big glass windows, concrete, and all the plumbing above your head. It's just like, cool. That, that those are people's toilets flushing right above my table. Like that's well, exciting that's to think about. That's the antithesis of Ned Ludd, so I can understand <laughs> oh, why totally. you would think that. But I, I have to, I think that um, I've always felt this way. It would be really nice if we just, I, I support, you know, younger people going out and trying and opening their new places. It's a different game now. It's become a little more corporate for any place to open because they need bigger bucks to do it. But we have such classics. You mentioned them before. You know, Nostrana, uh, Kevin Gibson's place, Davenport, Vitaly. We have such classic, beautiful restaurants that I, and I'm sure they're doing well right now, But the need that should be supported before the next shiny thing comes into play. Yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm again, I'm always going to go, you know, I'll go to John Taboda's restaurants. I'll go to Kevin Gibson. I'll go to Kathy Wims. Um, you know, I love like like what, what Gabe and Andy have been able to do with like Canard. Um, I, yeah, I mean, a Pizza Shoals. I mean, forget about it. Lovely 50-50s, right? Cocaine. Like these are the, I, that's. If I'm going to go out and I'm going to eat out, which again is rare, um, and P.S. I live in like Oswego now, and so of course there's um, you know the the chef's table made a big big push down here, so Lac Saint Jack is ten minutes from my house. Uh, pretty thrilled about that, um, and excited to see. I never pictured you living in Lake Oswego. Oh, dude, it- I'm yeah, I'm like a I'm it's I have more friends moving down here this year in the last two years than I would have ever imagined. Um, well, when I lived there in 2010, it was sinful for me to even admit to oh, it. It's, it's, yeah. and to a guy like you in oh, yeah. Portland, everybody rolled their eyes. Oh, I would totally roll my eyes. I was such a Portland guy, and this is that thing that you know. This is I mean, I have a real lament for my life in Portland because. Um, I, I just I, I'm so saddened by what Portland has become versus what it was. You know, Portland Portland was not this. I mean, shit, Portland. You know, if you were in Belmont in the '90s, the Belmont area there, up at like the '30s of Belmont. I mean, there were drugs, and you know, I mean, there's like there's a whole there's a whole underbelly to this city that existed all the way up until the '90s and early 2000s that just kind of like. I mean, didn't it, whatever it was, those aren't great reasons to love a city, but just, there was a little bit more grit and a little bit more of that, you know, the original roots of this city are not steeped in a shit ton of restaurants and, you know, bike lanes. It's steeped in, um, a lot more, um, kind of classic American working class reality. So that's why you have these sort of, you know, Southeast industrial centers and, you know, that those all, those things all exist. Um, because that's what the city really was. It was this this place between San Francisco and Seattle that kind of kept to itself, did its own thing, kept its head down, did not have 
necessarily a lot of revenue um, to speak of. And yet the infrastructure of the city was what it was. And the infrastructure of the city years ago, instead of focusing on the highways, which would have been great, um, they focused on making it a convention town. I mean, honestly, so you, if you build a bunch of, you know, light rail and bike lanes and hotels, you're indicating to the world that you are ready to host a shit ton of conventions. Well, post pandemic, I'm fascinated to see how that one plays out. I think it was a poor gamble. Um, and I think that the infrastructure of the city, especially in our schools has just suffered tremendously. And so, um, and then when you look at the reaction and response from a city council level, it's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, total lack of leadership. Oregon is suffering from a total lack of leadership and that has nothing to do with left or right or Republican or Democrat. It's, it's just a fact. Um, the vision for the city has just been failing. And, um, and again, I don't think there's a vision for the city. I think it's literally like a decade of hang on and see how much more I'm going to have to pay for my garbage pickup. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry. Could you ever see, could you ever see getting into politics? You've got a political <laughs> mind. You, have a, you come from a political. Family. I come from a political family. No, poly, no. I mean, you know, and again, so this is the work I'm focused on doing now is um, is uh, acting as a guide and um, a facilitator for positive change for men. That that is that is that isn't going to be my that is going to be my give back until I'm in the grave. Um, I so no women, not you're you're only interested in men. I feel like, and I love that. I, I, I want that's a whole other podcast. It is. I I feel like women have it. I feel like women have their collective community in spades, and I feel like there's a lot of emotional resiliency there already. And they've got Gwyneth Paltrow and the Goop crew kind of like bringing them everything they could possibly imagine wanting or needing as far as spiritual, physical well-being advice. And so I want to shift, you know, and not that I'm aiming to be the Gwyneth Paltrow for men, but it's a little bit of a, I'm building a platform right now that's a little bit of lifestyle. It's a little bit of, um, of skill based training. It's a little bit of health and wellness. It's a little bit of self-care. Um, it's a little bit of mental, uh, you know, like increasing your mental capacity and also increasing your emotional resiliency slash vulnerability. Um, and it's going to be partially one-on-one and partially group-based. So that's, that's what I'm currently building now. Um, and I'm excited to share more of it with everybody in, in, in not too distant future, but that, that's sort of my calling, right? Because as I've, gotten older and I've gotten to know so many young people, um, there's a real need. There's a real need for men uh, transitioning from adolescence to manhood, um, transitioning from teenage years into young adulthood, and then obviously transitioning, you know, it's, it's our it's our male transitions. We've lost sort of the cultural network of what it means to adequately and and collectively shift into responsibility accountability and kind of a, um, you know, uh, again, like an emotional resiliency. And so you don't have to look too hard to find the struggling white male kind of, you know, stereotype. Yeah. Stereotype. Yeah. And, and it's tough. Listen, it's tough to navigate there. It's tough for anybody, but as a, as a white male now, we just had this big discussion. I have a friend who's an editor 
And her editing has largely become editing for political correctness now. Sure. And so um, that's interesting because there's a lot to navigate. And having my experience is, and I believe you're 100% right, women have had those support systems in place that are that that deal with emotion and and navigation navigating different situations men that's been on the golf course yeah that's it, it um, if, you know if among guys that's, that's where they got their emotional support was their new driver right. and and how to hit it right so um i think there's a real need for it and i'm not just saying that to you because you happen to be here and you're my friend yeah but you kind of, I, I lit up when you explained what you were doing for men because I do think there is a huge need for that now. So you're filling, you're you're providing a real um, service for a lot of people. Well, and I don't think yeah, it, it's gonna it's not gonna take a lot of pe- men to think, well, shit, <laughs> that is something I could use, or or my friends and I could use that. Yeah. So uh, well, and it's kind of like so part of it's real talk, and part of it's you know growing the fuck up. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like when I was coaching, I would have these conversations with people where they would talk about their engagement with their wife. And then I would say like, cool. So what is the man? What would the man say? And they'd say, what do you mean? I'd be like, well, you just expressed to me what a 13 year old boy would say to his mom. Like what, what does the man version of you, how are you going to show up as a man in your household? Because right now you're living a life where you're like at odds, Again, it's with your wife, but you're treating her like she's your mom because you feel, again, scolded and not, you know, whatever. It's just, I, I feel like even so many people get really far down the road in life because you could be successful and have kids and a wife and everything and still be a scared 14 year old kid. And so um, I feel like if, as long as we can start to have real conversations about how we really feel, i.e. the vulnerability of a uh, kind of quotient that Brene Brown has, has illuminated for so many people. Um, it's really just about how do you want to show up for yourself first so that you can show up for the world. And if you don't show up for yourself first, you can't do anything. Um, so it's sort of a lot of it is just advocating for one's personal development and growth. It's kind of like a little bit of a selfish period so that you can come out the other side and be ready, willing, and able to engage life fully with, you know, again, sort of the the best of the masculine traits. And then we can retire all the old tired paradigms that we've been humping since, you know, Greek times. And we'll find some new paradigms that we'll have to 100%. 10 years from now. We'll have to retire as well. Well, and so. a lot of the cues I'm picking up are from my 13-year-old daughter and my 20-year-old daughter. So I have learned a ton. Yeah. And, you know, to sit there and be like, well, it's just generational. And this is how I was taught to think. It's like, all right, well, if that's the case, like, have fun for the next however many years you're alive. Um, you know, and I also put a real, yeah. I put a fine point on on our death, right? The eventuality, the only eventual, eventuality we are sure of is that we are going to die at some point. And at the end of the day, 100% of doctors and therapists and priests would agree that no one on their deathbed, you know, uh, you know, wishes they spent more time at the office or made more money or it's like, what do you what do you really want in life? Because it's all sitting right in front of you. And it's just a matter of acknowledging that that is real versus uh, the reality that that TV and every, you know, social media channel will tell you that they think is real. So for you. All right. Well, just to remind people, how will they find you 
And uh, what is it that uh, they need to do to contact you? And um, and you've already talked about where they might be in a headspace to need your services. But uh, well, the plat- just- the platform is being built. I don't actually have a website, but I'm happy to give uh, an email, which is Jason dot French at gmail.com. Um, and, and we, you know, I would handle correspondences from there. Well, I, I hope that you get, you, that you've got enough going on so you don't need the website at some point, but probably that a good idea fun. to just have a landing page for everything. Well, and I, yeah, I kind of had this whole funny thing of like, oh, I'm just gonna, uh, you know, I, I was like, I'm not going to do a social media platform at all. And of course, 100% of people are like, well, cool, that should only take you about 10 years to grow your business to where you want it to be. <laughs> well, you can do it, but there's different ways to do social media as well. But yeah, isn't it crazy that you have to, it's kind of sort of the antithesis of, and that's the second time I've used this word mm-hmm. this, in this hour, but the maybe the third, but what you want to do is get people away from the mindset and the pressure that comes from social media to looking inward and not outward. So, so the irony is you've got to, you've got to do that just to have a business, but I think you'll be able to, I think you'll, uh, you'll, you might need social media to get it up and running. I'm hoping things like this, that you do more things like this, not this week or next week, but you, and those that'll drive some business your way. Well, you know, if if there's anything I've learned over 13 years of running and owning Ned Ludd and Elder Hall is that, um, you know, I, I have, I have a really awesome skill set and it's just kind of playing to my strengths. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thank I'm so thankful and so grateful for Portland, um, and for the people of Portland and, and so much of the international and national press and support and colleagues, um, patrons and employees that kind of made it what it is. And I know, I know that I've got a ton of support out there for whatever I do. Um, and a lot of times it's just shifting people's ideas of who I am and, and who I'm supposed to be for them. But, um, but yeah, I also wanted to just, uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. And I mean, you're, you're still keeping the fire burning and, and cranking out the podcast, which is exciting. And I know it's been probably super challenging. You know, every, everything's been challenging for everyone. So I always feel like it in this time, especially for those of us who, whether we're getting it right or at least pushing to put some right into the world, um, that that's, that's honestly all you can ask from anyone. Yeah. It's a little thing I do. And, and while you're thanking me, I would have been remiss and I'm glad that you cued me to do this, but man, when I had this goofy idea to celebrate this collaborative uh, community spirit that existed in the food community that mm-hmm. I had never seen growing up in New England. Right. And uh, when I came to you, and we had only met because I'd been a customer of yours at lunch, I think. I've been there a couple of times for lunch. <laughs> that totally date, that dated you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ned, so, but when Ned, I called, Ned Ludd stopped lunch in like 2009. That's awesome. Well, yeah, that's when it was. Yeah. And I called you and said, hey, I got this idea. And not only did you agree to meet with me, you didn't know me, um, but you referred me to Scott Dolich as well. Scott may want to hear this. And I have this new idea that actually, when you look back, Jason, nobody was doing ticketed events back then. It was right. not done. Right. There was an occasional wine dinner somewhere, right. but that was so occasional. Yep. 
So it was sort of that and the idea that you would suggest all the places to go. And if you recall, I don't even remember exactly who it was, but we had your suggested uh, friends in your Portland Food Adventures event talking about their business, which we stopped doing after a while because it was hard to get them there. Right. Uh, but at any rate, I, what I meant to say was I really appreciate you as a person, and people should know that, as someone who was a busy guy doing everything at the restaurant that you just described and was still open to sitting down and talking to this guy who you didn't know and who had an idea, and then you not only did it, but um, we did it, and I believe we had to move the event once because Obama was in town, so we had to cancel <laughs> yeah. Dinner and then reschedule it. Yeah. And we did it and it was great. And you know, you and Kathy, think about those days where I, I knew the TV station GMs. So we're doing these events that are very similar, it's yeah. very a little different. And we were able to get TV coverage on all three local right. TV stations just for doing these food events. Um, so uh, you helped put what I was doing on whatever map it's on, so I sure. really appreciate that. Well, and again, like I'm, I, I you know, I tell my kids, um, I, you know, I told my daughter she just started eighth grade, and so I told her, um, I, I say this every year at the beginning of the year. Just remember three words: open, 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 uh, open to new possibilities, open to new people, and open to new ideas. And as long as you, in, you know, start anything that seems difficult or weird or you know, outside the box, um, you just got to stay open to it because this is where innovation is. This is where opportunity is. This is where personal growth is. Um, and, and those are the things that, that, you know, if we, if we just close ourselves off to all of it, then you can't really expect much out of life. And when you stay open to it all, it's, uh, it's all before you and there's, there's nothing but possibility. So that's, that's kind of, um, that's been my mantra for a while now. And so obviously for you, it was, it was sure. I mean, I, I, I had no, you know, of course I had no preconceived notions about anything at that point. I was, I was literally kind of in a funny survival mode. So every possibility for engagement and getting the word out there seemed like a fine idea. And, you know, it was that funny thing of when I stopped saying, I started saying no to events, uh, like big, you know, kind of like the, you know, San Diego food and wine fest or whatever these like kind of, you know, dog and pony shows. Um, um, it's like, what do I get paid? You know, like, and so when I wasn't getting paid, I, I just wouldn't do it. And the funny thing was everyone's like, Oh, well, aren't you, you know, you're going to miss out and you're going to, and I was just like, dude, there's a line of 150 dudes behind me who are going to say yes and do it for free and lose all kinds of money to put it out there. But that's literally, I mean, that's what it takes, right? You got to put it out there uh, when you're, when you're young and hungry and, and you gotta, you know, with the, the fastest way to grow a restaurant is to put food in people's mouths. So if that means 600 bites and an event in Chicago, um, for free, then that is what you did. And so, you know, you were part of that kind of era where for me at Ned Ludd, I wasn't saying no to a lot because I was, you know, number one, I was interested in seeing how far we could take it. And, you know, we, we opened Ned Ludd with no business plan and no idea of what would happen in the middle of a recession. So anything and everything for me was an opportunity. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate the the support and the friendship over the years. And I think, you know, you've, you've done a lot for the Portland food scene as well. And so, um, yeah, hats off to you. 
I, I try and I try to enjoy it as well. So um, I appreciate it. But again, it's the it's the spirit and I hope it continues. I really do. I don't I don't feel it as much as I used to. But that's also because, we're, you know, the pandemic that has happened and uh, yeah, I've chosen to detach myself a little bit, too. Thankfully, I have this podcast so I can stay in touch with with, with you know, you and others as well. Yeah. So um uh, I really appreciate it. I hope we don't lose touch. Um, I don't think we will, but, and I'd love to meet your uh, beautiful bride sometime. Yeah. So I meant, She's I haven't awesome. congratulated you for that. Thank but, you. Uh, we are, so um, yeah, we congratulations are, on, on falling in love and your honeymoon and yeah, your, your future life. Yeah. I always say everyone's like, where can I follow you? I'm like, just follow me on my wife's Instagram account. Um, she, yeah, we, that was, we, we both kind of arrived at this weird juncture in our lives. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we are, we, we feel like we just started dating and yeah, there's like all the energy of it. And marriage was not something we even talked about for the first couple of years. And so it's, um, yeah, we're, we're thrilled and, um, you know, we've really built a solid family. She's really close with both my daughters and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel, I feel like every, you know, it's like one of those situations where, you know, you, just when you think you know what love is, <laughs> right, then you, then you find it and it's like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be. Or this is, you know, and it's much more, it's less about sort of like the lovey-dovey feeling, which is nice. Um, but just, I found a real partner and, and that um, is something uh, I've been kind of like a solo guy my whole life, even though I've been in relationships. And so to learn what it's like to give and receive uh, in partnership has also been a really hugely valuable lesson for me. That's a whole nother podcast, man. We'll do it. So, right. uh, Keep me in mind. I know. <laughs> you know, I, I always, when I, when we you start talking about relationships and love and I've been in one for a few years now, which I never, you know, I was kind of out there solo for a long time, Yeah, but I just bit my toe in because I feel like, I don't want to offer anything that's going to come back to on me, or I certainly don't want to present myself as knowing anything. Right. But the coolest part about love is when you feel something you didn't know you were going to feel. Yeah. It can't be planned. So that's cool. So it's amazing. All right. Well, keep on feeling, man. I thanks, dude. It. Yeah. Thanks for uh, coming on. I appreciate it. Great to catch up. We'll talk soon, Chris. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right